brain fog, insomnia, moodiness, weight gain. Maybe you think they're just part of getting older, but Midi Health understands that for women over 40, they can all connect to menopause. It's at the root of dozens of symptoms we experience, not just hot flashes. Midi clinicians are menopause experts offering safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Welcome back to the Gillette Health After Hours Podcast. I'm Dr. Kyle Gillette. And I'm James O'Hara, nurse practitioner. And today we're going to be providing commentary on what we believe is uh, dysfunctional medicine or examples of dysfunctional medicine in the traditional medical setting, in the Mm -hmm. functional medical setting, hence the play on functional medicine with dysfunctional medicine. So I think we're going to have a lot of fun. Hopefully you all enjoy it as well. Yeah, so let's dive right in. Normally, we give you tools to develop a balanced approach to health. And I guess in this, we're going to provide commentary about how to not have an unbalanced approach to health. Um, Last week, actually, I got a notification from an insurance company. It was affiliated with a service called Express Scripts, if any of you are familiar with that. Um, Not that I'm calling Express Scripts out. They all do this. Oh, yeah. They denied me. (sighs) Well, kind of. They did deny something, but they also sent a, it's called letter of medical concern. So of course, being a discerning provider, I said, well, let's hear them out. Let's see what they brought up about this particular patient. Uh, Some generic background um, is this patient is, has type two diabetes and this patient has previously been on metformin. So this patient would meet criteria for a GLP-1 receptor agonist and um, apparently had not been diagnosed with type 2 diabetes as far as the ICD-10 code, but was a known diabetic. So um, I sent a prescription for a GLP-1 and this was not approved. And instead, the letter letter of medical concern, instead of saying, we are concerned this patient is not on a GLP-1 yet because the latest A1C was 7.7, said this patient should be on a statin. And as people know, I am certainly not anti-statin, but I thought that it was ironic that they would not cover that medication. Instead, I feel like they should have the letter of medical concern because this patient actually went to the pharmacy and paid out of pocket for the GLP-1. They are not cheap. So you're welcome, um, pharmaceutical company. You're welcome, CVS. And I guess you're welcome, um, insurance company. Even though you're trying to ding me, it's actually the insurance company's dysfunctional medicine algorithm that brought this situation up. That's interesting. It, it is a reverse UNO card situation where they are not meeting the evidence-based standard of care and then trying to point the finger at you for not having the patient on a statin or every provider that had seen this. Presumably, this patient's been diabetic for some time if the A1C is at 7.7. Yep. And I remember when I was a kid, I don't know how old, but I was told if you point your finger at someone You have three fingers pointing back at you. So that's why I always point with my hand like this. So you have five fingers pointing back at you? Pointing only at the other person, Uh, not pointing back at me. I see. So it's not like that. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good one. So I guess um, on the topic of statins, you would think that since insurance companies are sending you letters about how this patient needs a statin with... um, with no qualms, they should cover every ApoB test that we order. Or do patients have to pay out of pocket for that test that is proven to be a better monitoring than That's right, LDL? because this isn't the first time you have received a letter from a, I guess, Medicare is technically an insurer. Um, your experience in ordering ApoB tests, which I probably wouldn't be aware of if we weren't you know, reading the journals, if we weren't. Um, following other podcasts where this is mentioned time and time and time again. But going back like several years ago now, you had made it sort of a practice to order an ApoB test because they're the accepted standard of care in 
Europe, in JAMA cardiology, in lipidology, mm -hmm. it's a much more accurate and reliable predictor of who's going to have a future cardiovascular event. So what happened when you started ordering these tests for patients? Yeah, I got a, a similar letter, uh, I guess also of medical concern and also financial concern about maximum amounts of money and maximum amount, amounts of tests that um, this insurer was willing to pay. This was much after the articles that you referenced were published, I guess, um, even though it's after hours, we can still provide references. A lot of times in our posts, um, our listeners or followers say, well, where is this source or where is this reference? Documents. Yeah, where's the documents? And a lot of times if you just listen to the podcast, then uh, we'll note the documents, the article from JAMA Cardiology, I believe it was published in November of 2021. And it was, I think it was a Dr. Alan Snyderman publisher. But there was a whole bunch of authors. The title was The Debate is Over. ApoB is better than LDL for monitoring, blah, blah, blah. So um, they the standard of care is set, but they don't cover it. But they still want to make sure that, I guess, instantly after your diagnosis, you're on a statin because that is somehow an acute med. So I think that's all we need to say about this. It was a bit dysfunctional. And there's a lot of... Um, cognitive dissonance among the insurance companies and um, what they're willing to pay for. Yeah. And there's a lot of, you know, pointy fingers of, you know, why is the cost of healthcare so high? And there's a lot of moving parts there. Maybe we dive into that another time. Yep. But um, having the idea of, you know, algorithmic medicine, that's definitely the way that insurers, at least for their first line, they just follow a simple yes or no, this medication is preferred or not preferred. Um, another example that we you know, basically jokingly came up with because we're discussing, you know, patients and, you know, go to a dermatologist, you're losing hair. They say, oh, hey, you know, take some biotin. Um, you know, this is something that's in every health blog, experts all over, you know, biotin for hair. And this actually happens. We have patients that this happens to. Yeah, it's probably half a dozen or more where people are taking a biotin. And this is one that is particularly important because it can affect your TSH. And I believe a couple of other lab numbers as well, um, but is known to raise the TSH a bit. I, I actually saw an article on this many years ago, back when I was doing my nurse practitioner program and uh, kind of just made it a, a point to discuss with people when they're getting their thyroid check, prior to getting their thyroid check, make sure that they're not doing anything that's going to give us a skewed result. So this algorithm would be starting biotin for hair loss. Then you check the patient's TSH. The TSH is high. So you start them on a thyroid med. A uncommon complication of thyroid medication, but a more common complication when it's given unnecessarily is a, an arrhythmia called atrial fibrillation. So the patient goes into AFib. And then because they're in AFib, you want to start a beta blocker, such as propranolol, or I assume any other drug that ends in lol, right? Anything ends in lol, stenozolol. That would be, yeah, that's probably the best beta blocker. It makes people feel good instead of making them tired like metoprolol does. Yeah, much better than metoprolol. So I think a select few of our <laughs> audience will like that. Uh, but unfortunately, the stenazolol would probably aggravate that hair loss. Probably would, given that it's an, a synthetic androgen. Yeah. But the take-home is now they have these substantial health problems, and they're less worried about their hair that was lost. So this is a obviously to the point of exaggeration for comedic effect, but um, you know, example of a pharmaceutical cascade yep. that when people are started on unnecessary medications, sloppy prescribing, these sorts of things you know can happen. You know, we've had. Um, a specific example, you know, uh, patients that are you know, sent to urgent care, the watch alerts them that they have AFib. This happens all the time now since we have the technology and people are having their health monitored by these smart devices. And sometimes the urgent cares do a great job and get these people anticoagulated and appropriately referred. Um, sometimes the urgent cares put people on the wrong rate control medications and even the wrong anticoagulants. So like aspirin, which is an antiplatelet and not an anticoagulant. Yes. Not effective for stroke prevention in AFib. Correct. A couple other notes. The biotin in your multivitamin is not a high enough level to cause an elevation in TSH. And I guess on that note, 
Shouldn't every patient with a TSH of 2.2 or above be started on exogenous thyroid replacement because it's associated with all-cause mortality if your TSH is above 2.2? Well, it depends. I wouldn't start it just above a TSH of 2.2. What you want to do is get a really thorough workup, sarcastically, of course, order every thyroid test that starts with T. And if anything is abnormal, then you have one of two potential paths to go down. You either put them on thyroid hormone and see what happens, or you refer them to endocrinology. <laughs> yeah, endocrinology will love to check free T3s and antibodies as well. Of note, the thyroglobulin antibody and TPO, thyroid peroxidase antibody, about 10 to 15% of the healthy population without Hashimoto's will test positive for these. Hashimoto's is usually more defined as chronic lymphocytic infiltration, so I guess if you really want to know that you can get a biopsy, but an ultrasound is kind of a good in-between. Um, but yeah, a, especially a lower titer of one of those antibodies is not a slam dunk case of, um, you know, like pre-hypothyroid Hashimoto's. Yeah, particularly if you have values that are euthyroid, so meaning normal TSH, normal T3, normal T4, and you know, contrary to popular belief, these reference ranges are not based on only sick, obese individuals. These are kind of healthy people within a population that they're based on. And they are broad reference ranges. Yeah. And there are always individual differences in how people respond to different hormones. But in general, I think that's a good pearl for people because a lot of people are seeking healthcare outside of the traditional medical environment because they do want more you know, substantial testing and more thorough workup more time. Um, if there's an option for a non-invasive diagnostic test, like blood work is minimally invasive, a thyroid ultrasound would definitely be preferred prior yes. to a thyroid biopsy, um, then that's an important point to raise with you know, whoever is managing your care and your potential thyroid workup. Yeah, those are great points. Um, also, if there's an individual who is euthyroid, who is not actively at risk of um, other complications from thyroid disease. They have a, an ultrasound with maybe one tiny nodule that doesn't need follow-up. Then you don't necessarily have to do anything with those patients, especially if they don't want to, just counsel them regarding the risks and the benefits and the chance of progression of something like chronic autoimmune thyroiditis, presuming that it's that. Um, so uh, on that note, uh, I guess we are secret lovers of functional medicine and the science behind true functional medicine. I know I've done, we've done a podcast with Amanda Morris, another one of the nurse practitioners that is kind of a thyroid expert and gut health expert. And we certainly get a lot of referrals from other functional medicine providers, uh, both physicians and nurse practitioners and actually chiropractors and naturopaths as well. And uh, some of the referrals, especially from certain clinics, have a recurring theme and patients tell me, yes, I saw Dr. So-and-so or nurse practitioner so-and-so, and they're not sure what's wrong. They've narrowed it down to two things. And there is a 99% chance it is one of these two things. It's either heavy metal toxicity or tick-borne illness. And if it's a different functional medicine provider, it's either mold toxicity or tick-borne illness. So we could call this the functional triad mm -hmm. because these are three things that are very commonly um, discussed and diagnosed, perhaps overdiagnosed, likely mm -hmm. overdiagnosed in, in functional medicine practices because when a traditional workup doesn't reveal an underlying problem, then sometimes providers are incentivized to grasp at things that are not really there, which is not a great business model. Mm -hmm. It's a business model, but it's not great for patients yep. or the reputation of you know functional medicine, which means we're not really sure what it means at this point. It means a lot of different things, but true functional medicine is heavily grounded in evidence or should be. The root cause, finding the true root cause and addressing the true root cause where possible. And we don't need to go into the strengths and limitations of testing for these various conditions, heavy metal, tick-borne illness, and mold toxicity. And yes, we both certainly do have patients that do have these pathologies as well. Part of that is uh, selection bias. So patients that select us um, are kind of often even more far down the, uh, I guess, dysfunctional medicine algorithm. They've seen multiple 
not only conventional medicine providers, but alternative medicine providers. And I wouldn't even say that we necessarily prefer patients like this, but we are happy to help anybody that might seek out our services. Um, so yes, that like we're not um, we're not trying to invalidate someone who does have one of these pathologies, but we've very consistently seen this as a common theme among people who go to those clinics. Just like if you seek out, say, a fibromyalgia specialist, you might end up with a fibromyalgia diagnosis. It's similar to that. Yeah. And the, the chronic Lyme is interesting because this is actually an infectious disease, technically, I, I suppose. Mold toxicity is a, a bit of an overlap between either infectious pathology, because certainly you can get fungal lung inf infections yep. um, versus a mold allergy that's causing the symptoms. But uh, chronic Lyme, it'd be interesting to listen to an infectious disease physician who is well-versed in this area, you know, perhaps even on this podcast at some mm -hmm. point. And the heavy metal toxicity is interesting because if you are seeing a functional medicine provider, just run of the mill, probably going to be on quite a few supplements and it almost like makes, it, makes it more of a reasonable test to order because you're taking a bunch of supplements which may or may not be contaminated with heavy metals. Yeah. So the more supplements you are on, the more high yield of a test heavy metal toxicity is. I have seen cases that have true heavy metal toxicity, often mercury, where you see that enzymes that are cofactored with selenium are interrupted as well, even hematologic abnormalities. And I have seen cases where I think one of the main causes is that they were on really high doses of methylfolate and methyl B12. Um, those can help, can aid in the release of mercury systemically when your body kind of naturally sequesters them off. And also cases of people that are perhaps unnecessarily avoiding oxalates like the plague. And oxalates are going to chelate and help bind up heavy metals in the gut uh, and good metals too. So there's obviously a balance, but um, both of those uh, cases we have seen. A couple of other red flags. Um, and these are interesting because they're on two complete ends of the spectrum. So you have uh, providers who order every single test. So this isn't like a you know, two or $300 panel. This is people who are paying thousands of dollars for lab testing. Yep. And that is quite extreme. And then on the other end, you have people where you don't need any lab testing. You're treating the patient, not the lab values. Um, we had some fun this morning taking some hormone quizzes um, because this is supposedly a way to tell whether you have a cortisol issue or a testosterone issue, or an estrogen issue, or a progesterone issue. Um, you know, I'm sure there's ones out there for other hormones like serotonin and dopamine as well. Yeah. Uh, but it was really interesting. What happened whenever you and I took the test and answered it differently? Yeah, so we got the exact same result. When uh, you take the test, when I took the test, when my wife took the test, um, very different situations, but the exact same result. The result is just uh, take my quiz, which if you answer it carefully, that could take a solid five minutes. And they give you an email to buy their program with no information whatsoever. This is infuriating. And really, it's not acceptable because it is a it's advertising the quiz almost like a PHQ-9 or a GAD-7. And it's like, this is a service or an they could have at least put an Adam or an Eve questionnaire there. Mm -hmm. and Something validated. Yeah. And it's just trying to play into the sunk cost fallacy, which you've already sunk five minutes of your time into this. So you might as well just pay my small fee and um, get my program that tells my you to e stop course. eating. Yeah, to, yeah. It's going to tell you to stop eating meat. So. <laughs> Yeah. And I, I actually went back and did this a second time. I said, well, I'm going to, the only thing I'm going to click this entire quiz is high cholesterol. And turns out I had hormone dysfunction and I needed to take the course still. So yeah, very disappointing. And I think this is, even if you had like a validated questionnaire there, say it's an Adam or an Eve, uh, the Adam questionnaire, like if someone has sleep apnea or hypothyroidism, they're going to hit some of those marks and be like, oh, look, the quiz says you have low testosterone. 
when in reality, the lab testing may show subclinical or true clinical hypothyroidism, or they could have signs of sleep apnea, insulin resistance, they snore, they stop breathing in their sleep, they have an elevated red blood cell count. Those are things, you know, it, it should be a diagnosis of exclusion, not like take this test and then, okay, here's the treatment. Yeah. And most validated tool questionnaires are that way. By the way, validated tools are usually validated against things like biopanks. This is something that you know has um, been studied well. And usually if it's screening, you want there to be high sensitivity and relatively low cost. Now, there's obviously other things that are not screening that do not have those two things, and they can be applicable. But if you think about uh, PHQ-9, um, if you don't have depression or mood disorder and you're just in bereavement, you're probably going to have a really high PHQ-9, and that's okay. You see your healthcare provider or perhaps even your therapist, and um, they're able to discern, yes, that would be um, not due to depression, but due to bereavement. Yeah, it's almost like you need to have a thorough history that's taken around the answers of a quiz before you can tell someone what the treatment would be or whether this is something that would deviate back to the mean because you're under a lot of stress. Another, yeah. I guess, red flag in health information. Um, so this is very popular now. There's a lot of health experts and experts in the social media field. And if you see a, you know, a blog post or a reel or a podcast such as this, you ideally would want there to be a number of citations given for the information that was provided because people can and do make things mm -hmm. up all the time. And sometimes yep. those are true. Sometimes they're not. Um, we do our best to include citations. We're probably not perfect at that because uh, we have thousands of studies swirling around our head at all times. But we do try to add a lot of references and citation to the material that we put out. Especially where needed, where it's not an accepted standard of care. Like at, the, mm. at this point, and actually I think we do give a lot of citation. We did earlier today for APOB, even though yeah. we didn't need to. That's an <laughs> accepted standard of care in medicine. Another red flag would be too many citations. You see a lot of individuals who do not practice evidence-based medicine and they have a bunch of citations, usually in the form of I don't know why, but they like to put the PMID numbers. Sometimes I do that too. And it links to a bunch of rodent studies or even um, in vitro studies. And that is another red flag because they're masquerading behind the, um, behind pretending to be evidence-based medicine, but it's not clinically applicable. Yeah. And this can even happen in, like the references can even be misrepresented. So they can misunderstand a study intentionally or unintentionally. And this can even happen in scientific literature. Like sometimes you will go back and comb through literature and you'll see a reference and then you'll go see, okay, what this has like a one sentence that's referring to this reference. Let's see a little bit more of information about that. And then you find out that that's actually not what was seen in the study at all. I believe this was the case in um, a lot of the research we we're doing surrounding Tonkat Ali um, yep. acting as a you know, an aromatase, aromatase inhibitor, inhibitor or a CIRM. Yep. And we, you know, based on the literature that's out there and then, you know, most recent study I'm aware of, there was an increase in both testosterone and, and estradiol estrogen. in men. So it doesn't seem to have a significant effect on aromatase in terms of reducing that. So th this isn't just in social media messaging. There's a, a standard that isn't always upheld even in scientific literature. It's the same thing with DIM. There is a physician that wrote a book for a company that discussed how DIM is an aromatase inhibitor. And that also does not appear to be the case. So uh, a lot of slippery slope. And that was in a, a book that was written with citations. Citations, you say? Yeah. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place by working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. 
Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The false citations. Um, speaking of citations or lack of citations, um, one of the things that we enjoy reading, partly because we just are open-minded and we want to see what people have to say. We're interested in phytoestrogens, phytoandrogens, even phytoprogestins, um, is about hormone disruptors in food and foods that cause hormone imbalance. And we found a good list of 10 from a reputable, well-known functional medicine physician. Yeah, and there's dozens of these individuals. These are very popular social media posts and reels. You know, if we made a reel that was my top five foods for hormone, you know, hormone balance or optimize your hormones or to lower inflammation, top five lists, top 10 lists, they're all very popular. Yep. Um, so a few of these uh, we gathered and put in a list here. So um, number one, alcohol. Solid. It's a good start. That's a good choice. Yep. Number two, sugar. Now, this one is a little bit tricky because there is sugar in berries. There's sugar in vegetables. Mm -hmm. um, I assume this is referring to like foods with a lot of added sugar, which tend to be ultra processed. So I, I would say that avoiding excess sugar for most people would be beneficial to solid yeah. one and two. This, this should just... Yeah, really, it should say ultra processed food or excess sugar, because you could make the argument someone with a high SHBG that is on keto, uh, perhaps they have a, a very low free testosterone. The lack of carbs or the lack of sugar is actually causing their hormone imbalance. Yes, yeah, this was an interesting discussion in the lean mass hyper responder circle. So the established causal role of LDL and atherosclerosis in theory, you would improve one of these individuals' health by mm -hmm. adding something like 80 grams of sugar per day to their diet, mm -hmm. because then their LDL would go from 300 to a more reasonable range, maybe 120, 130, probably not ideal still, mm -hmm. being on a like primarily meat and sugar diet. Yep. Um, but it, it's an interesting discussion. So you know, sugar is not going to 100% have a negative impact on someone's health. And as we say all the time, the dose makes the poison. Yeah. The main effect that sugar does have on wrecking your hormones is that it is a easy to consume food of high calories. So you develop metabolic syndrome. Um, and the same correlation could be said of artificial sweeteners. Um, but in some cases, artificial sweeteners are going to, well, they're not calorically dense, but people who tend to consume artificial sweeteners tend to have metabolic syndrome. So let's say you ask, um, you send out a questionnaire to 100 average or 100 random Americans. Those that consume over a certain threshold of aspartame will probably have low testosterone, but those are also probably uh, people of class one or class two obesity. And um, that's probably why they're trying to consume these artificial sweeteners. Yeah. And it was a really interesting position. I think a lot of people talked about this recently where the World Health Organization put out a statement sort of against artificial sweeteners. And artificial sweeteners are certainly, if you have someone eating 100 grams of sugar per day or replacing that with an artificial sweetener, overwhelmingly, like going from drinking regular Coke to a Diet Coke is going to be a positive swap. So when we demonize so many things that are like steps in the right direction for people, it, it kind of disincentivizes people to change it all, I mm -hmm. think, in some cases. Not all cases, but I think there is some, like creates even more confusion. Mm -hmm. This is a good place to plug our future non-nutritive sweetener or low nutritive sweetener podcast. Um, I think we've done carbs, proteins, fats, and maybe fiber. So that is a future one coming up. Um, the next two on the list are gluten and dairy. And yes, the gluten protein, which is the protein from grain, uh, can bind the mu opioid receptor, especially in high amounts, but mostly in the gut. 
that can cause GI distress. Casein protein from dairy can do the same. And the two do have the potential to increase prolactin at very high doses. But for the average person, this is just not the case. Yeah, and it's interesting because uh, we have a, a graph of the foods that people are most commonly consuming. And um, the outrage against dairy you know, is a bit unwarranted because if you look at the statistics, I think my plate recommends two to three servings of dairy per day as part of a balanced diet. And most people are eating substantially less than that. I think it's something like 80% of people are eating very little dairy. So from a climate perspective, from a health perspective, it doesn't seem like even if dairy was terrible for people, it's not causing harm because most people aren't eating it. You could say the same for whole grains. You know, mm -hmm. it's like 5% of people eat the recommended number of whole grains. Probably why people are getting 10 or 15 grams of fiber in per day. Now, gluten is still going to be present in refined grains. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that whole grains take a lot of the blame for the refined grains that people tend to enjoy and, and overconsume. Yeah. The next is caffeine. And I do feel personally attacked because... Every time I chat with my friend Andrew Huberman and on multiple other podcasts, people always ask him about caffeine, both for hair loss, uh, its nootropic effect, but I'm often asked specifically about its hormonal effect. Um, for example, growth hormone, androgens, estrogens, uh, cortisol, uh, your main glucocorticoid, and there is no significant hormonal effect one way or another. Yes, it does shift where your spike of cortisol is but it is not going to give you high cortisol or give you low cortisol, give you adrenal fatigue, lower your testosterone. Uh, caffeine should not be on the list of things that wreck your hormones. In fact, it should be on the list of um, things that can change your circadian rhythm. Yeah, I think that's more accurate. And I, you know, pushing back a little bit, I know that there are people who say, you know, I cut caffeine out and it was the best thing I ever did. I feel great. And if that's the case for you, you've cut out caffeine and you feel better, then by all means, continue on with that. Um, caffeine is probably the most popular drug. Mm -hmm. Most people do consume caffeine daily or at least weekly. And a little excerpt here, I suppose I could read from a well-known hormone expert, uh, A4M speaker, uh, says, it is better to avoid coffee, tea, and stimulants because they will decrease your hormone production. Now, I don't know which hormones this is referring to, if it's talking about the hormone dopamine or norepinephrine. Adenosine signaling? Isn't that a hormone you would rather be decreased? Yeah, this is, this is a rough statement. Um, and I can't really think of any context to where it would make more sense. Um, those that feel great when they cut out caffeine, uh, it's great that you feel better without it, but figure out why. Were you a slow metabolizer, even just uh, according to pharmacogenomics, um, genetically, some people metabolize caffeine very slow. I think we've dove into this multiple times in the past. We've noted how many synthetic estrogens like ethanol estradiol, especially at higher levels, slow the metabolism of caffeine. We've noted how some people kind of need more of that time for adenosine dumping between waking up and their first caffeine of the day. It also depends on when you naturally have your cortisol spike. Um, so there's a lot of things that depend on caffeine metabolism, um, but it's not going to decrease your hormone production. The only thing that I could think of is it increases, increases the release of cortisol. Yeah, which is cortisol is a hormone. So this is the problem when people say like hormones and just leave it at that. So it's like, these foods will wreck your hormones. It's like, well, which hormones specifically? I mean, and by wreck, do you mean ramp up hormones that shouldn't be ramped up or decrease hormones that you would rather have higher? Um, certainly eating a lot of sugar will yeah. ramp up hormone production in the pancreas, uh, as we yeah. like to call it, the peptide factory. Yeah, a good old peptide factory, the pancreas. We love it. Um, we could probably come up with a top five list just really quick off the top of our heads. Um, foods that wreck your hormones. Foods of high caloric density. High glycemic foods. Liquid calories. I, I guess that overlaps with the first category, but I know that's a personal favorite of yours and mine. Liquid calories. Alcohol. 
And uh, that's four good ones. Um, I'm sure we could think of a top five or even a top 10 at some point, but it does kind of feel weird just saying these are foods that wreck your hormones without mentioning how. So the excess calories or the liquid calories, inducing metabolic syndrome and hyperestrogenism, negative feedback inhibition of the pituitary. Uh, if we're talking about uh, alcohol, again, it's aromatization. So it's, uh, it's convenient to have a 20 second clip that you can put on TikTok and say, these destroy your hormones and people can share it. And boom, you're a famous doctor, you functional medicine. Um, but it's uh, the antithesis of functional medicine to say, there, we're not gonna tell you the mechanism, just stop eating this. We really need to do a separate podcast with Diana, our sports dietitian, um, mm -hmm. because at the end of the day, this, uh, this is gonna lead to um, unnecessary food restrictions and orthorexia. Yeah, and I almost think that it's the psychology of the viewer and the, the way social media algorithms are set up to where it's, it's more exciting to see what you should be avoiding than what you should be doing because people perceive it as much easier to cut something out than to start doing something healthy, mm -hmm. right? It's like, oh, well, eat six servings of fruits and vegetables and you'll feel better. It's like, well, that's not particularly exciting or easy to do. So I would rather you know, continue to scroll and find something that um, maybe makes me slightly upset, right? I think that's a, a trait that Andrew Huberman pointed out that people, when they were able to choose what area of the brain they stimulate, uh, was one that made them you know, slightly angry or slightly upset, which is why people enjoy watching the news and seeing things that they're doing that they shouldn't be doing on social media. Uh, perhaps that, that's a theory I'm working on anyway. Interesting theory. So I don't watch the news, so it doesn't make me upset. <laughs> or I'll never know because I don't watch the news. Uh, anyway, on that note, uh, see Diana. She's a, our sports dietitian. For more info, she's all over our social media. I like the way that she phrases it. Her goal and our goal is to give you the least restrictive diet possible while still being healthy. Yeah, I think flexibility and in your variety is something that's very important for people. You don't want to continue to build people into a corner, build them into a box where, you know, they're overwhelmed and limited to the point where they can't possibly follow mm -hmm. the diet. And if that's the case, then they've failed the diet and it's the patient's fault. They're not getting better, right? I guess so. Uh, on that note of failing the diet, uh, we should all eat plenty of protein in the morning because according to this doctor, eating enough protein in the morning gives you good levels of energy and eliminates any feeling of hunger during the day. Well, that is false because I had plenty of protein for breakfast and I still had a sensation of hunger at some point today. Yeah. Uh, I guess to play devil's advocate, maybe this was hyperbole. Um, protein is kind of in between fat and carbs, um, in regards to its, uh, upregulation of endogenous GLP-1 glucagon-like peptide. Um, and GLP-1 is made by both alpha cells of the pancreas and the gut itself. And it's that gustatory response. So I guess if you like the protein you eat in the morning, you get a bit more. Yeah. And it, it's interesting if you look at the like high protein whole foods, they are generally more, you know, they have a more of a satiety response. So if you look at, uh, for me personally, salmon is a great example of this, you know, especially being very lean, wild caught salmon, you know, it's mm -hmm. something that is very filling and not particularly calorie dense. Mm -hmm. You know, if someone went on the salmon diet instead of a car carnivore diet, I can't imagine how they would possibly gain weight on that because you'd have to consume a lot. I guess bears manage to do that. But bears also don't get heart disease. Maybe it's the omega-3s. Yeah, that's true. And they don't eat too many vegetables. <laughs> Sometimes they do. Uh, um, they also but, have hyperphagia, therapeutic hyperphagia to survive. Yeah. So it's kind of an interesting position. And there are some studies, I believe, uh, casseroles are used in these where they have a casserole that's made with different percentages of protein. Yep. And when it's baked into a mixed dish like that, the satiety response um, sort of is disappears or is blurred where you don't necessarily, you don't know how much protein you're getting and your satiety response is sort of less likely to be subconsciously triggered. Um, so, you know, ultra processed foods that are high in protein, probably not gonna have the same satiety response as something that's more of a whole foods type of. Yeah, this is actually one of the huge benefits of a carnivore diet or of a paleo diet or of a whole 30 diet. Mm -hmm. You're eating a lot of whole 
foods, vegetables, fruits, or in the case of the carnivore diet, um, ideally no processed foods, uh, perhaps organ meat and meat. And that is it. And that is particularly satiating. Um, there's nothing better. I call it pleasure eating. I like to sit down with perhaps, you know, like some bison or elk or whatnot and um, like a nice medium rare steak. And it you can eat on that for 30 minutes and it is extremely pleasurable and nutrient dense. Um, but you don't have to do that all the time. No. <laughs> so uh, I guess another, so that would be one of my recommendations. If you are doing a refeed or if you're in a caloric deficit, it's hard to beat something like that if you are someone who consumes animals. Um, this other doctor said for lunch, I had advise you to consume more protein than in the morning. So morning high protein, but lunch, I guess, even higher protein, extra high protein. What did he recommend for his food sources with a ton of protein? in it? Let's see. A salad, vegetables, and germinated seeds. Those don't sound very high in protein per gram of food. I guess it would be a very large lunch. I, I would probably feel bloated if I was getting 40 grams of protein from those sources. Yeah. So We, we should note <laughs> that if you are not someone who eats a lot of vegetables, if you are going on a health kick or a health phase, add them in extremely slowly. Just like if you're, and obviously don't try to teach yourself this, if you are trying to teach yourself to drink a half gallon of milk a day or a half of a fifth of whiskey a day, and again, no need to teach yourself either one of those, then you are going to add that in very slowly because your body and your gut needs to develop the enzymes to be able to metabolize it. Um, lactase enzyme, um, proteases, um, brush border enzymes, alcohol dehydrogenase, acetylaldehyde dehydrogenase. It takes a while to upregulate these enzymes. Same thing for gluten actually. If you've been gluten-free for a really long time, you got to add it in very slowly. And the same is true of any vegetable. Yeah. And I think this is a you know broader principle that can be applied to other areas of life. You know, you always want to ease into things and, and start slowly. Like, you know, you're not going to go from being 100% sedentary, full tilt into CrossFit style training. And if you do, then there may be some injuries or setbacks that you incur. Mm -hmm. Same thing like, you know, you're not going to go out and, you know, get off the couch and then run a marathon next weekend. So, you know, easing into things, you know, training smartly, incorporating things in your diet smartly. And this can be a big one with, you know, like vegetables and fiber because people, you know, I'll ask people, hey, you know, take an inventory. Do you know how much fiber you get on an average day? And a lot of times the answer is no. So they'll go back and take an inventory and I'll say, now when you find out that you're eating 15 grams of fiber per day, don't go right to 50 grams of fiber. You're not going to like me very much. You're going to be bloated and very uncomfortable and it's not going to be a good experience. Slowly increase that intake. So that's what happened with my four scoops of Metamucil. I thought it was just the artificial coloring. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, there's better value products out there than Metamucil. I uh, specifically tell people Psyllium husk is the same thing that's in Metamucil, but get the psyllium husk powder, not the Metamucil. It's easier on your wallet. And, you know, if there's a choice between less or more artificial colors and sweeteners, it, the choice is probably going to be less, mm -hmm. um, but not if it makes your life overly restrictive. Mm -hmm. uh, speaking of life being overly restrictive, uh, stay tuned for a deep dive on both the benefits and detriments of functional fitness, including CrossFit. I have, I guess, secret, so somewhat secretly been doing CrossFit style training, not at a CrossFit box, but essentially CrossFit for six months now. I have not gotten injured yet, um, but much more on that as what I can, I consider myself to be a mostly unbiased observer in the space. I know there's a lot of um, both myths and truths and weaknesses and strengths of CrossFit style training. So. Uh, there will be multiple podcasts exclusively on that in the future. Yeah. And maybe I will talk specifically about my hybrid power lifter style training mm -hmm. paired with drop sets, which yep. is essentially two complete opposite training styles, but going uh, quite well, sort of the program that I've been doing as of late. Um, but going back to health and functional medicine, you ever get a clogged liver? Um, I guess so. Aren't you just supposed to stay on a push catch protocol every other month? <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, this is another 
um, diet and hormone uh, advice piece that was on an internet blog somewhere. Um, again, medical doctor. Uh, says avoid eating pro in the evening specifically. Avoid eating protein. Otherwise, the liver will be clogged with amino acids and will turn into less, it will turn less inactive thyroid hormone T4 into active hormone T3. And if you're confused by that statement, then we are too, because uh, we debated multiple various potential mechanisms of this, and there doesn't seem to be a great founding. Yeah, I would be very surprised if any of my patients were avoiding protein in the evening, dinner, um, and I have yet to see someone who has a low T3 where we trace the root cause back to eating protein with dinner. Selenium, very important. Not too much, not too little iodine, very important. Um, Enough boron, fairly important. Metabolic health, particularly important. Um, potentially consuming less protein, especially less methionine and less leucine in the evening. Also potentially important, especially for the um, like neoplastic risk risk or cancer patients um, because of their action on mTOR and cell turnover. But uh, because it clogs the liver and changes thyroid hormone conversion, um, not, not really a reason. Of note, if you're in a significant caloric deficit, you might also see that effect with thyroid hormones. And -hmm. if you're in a state of low androgens, you also might see low free thyroid hormones in general, high total to free ratio, Um, but not necessarily from this. Also, I guess for all of um, the patients or apparently the entire country that's on Ozempic or other (laughs) GLP-1s, you can get clogged hepatobiliary pancreatic duct systems from that, especially the biliary. So yeah, that's very true and important for people to talk about and think about when these things are marketed as having no downsides on the, the TikToks mm-hmm. and Instagram. If anything, you would say consuming high amounts of fat, you're more likely to have a gallbladder attack or a liver attack. Yeah. Also taking synthetic estrogens, higher risk of a clogged liver Yep, definitely true. You think of um, female in the 40s, obese, fertile, lots of estrogen. Mm-hmm. If you've been pregnant, yep, your estrogen is 20,000 instead of 200. So that can definitely make a pretty big difference. Yeah, I think that's about all we have for today. Um, maybe we'll end with a story of some dysfunctional medicine in a traditional medical setting. So uh, this goes mm-hmm. back to when I was going through you know, training or orientation at a hospital many years ago, working as a, a registered nurse, an RN. And this story was told in every orientation period, just as a reminder to always double check if something doesn't seem right or there's any uncertainty about a order. So the setting is an emergency room and the medication in question is uh, dexamethasone, Decadron, this is a corticosteroid. Very common to give this in emergency settings for respiratory issues, asthma attacks, things of the sort. And the order was for the liquid solution, the IV solution of dexamethasone. And uh, the physician wanted it given orally. So this medication is like basically most IV medications because they are in some sort of solvent they're going to taste very terrible. So the physician order was to um, mix with applesauce. So apparently a registered nurse who has gone through some sort of schooling, passed an exam of sorts, um, put the dexamethasone in the applesauce, drew it up in the syringe and put it in a patient's IV because it said IV dexamethasone give with applesauce. And that's the story. Yeah, um, pretty disappointing story, kind of sad. Um, dexamethasone, definitely a common medication. You could have a lot of takeaways from this. Yes, it does come in elixir and other forms. And fun fact, elixirs do have alcohol in them. Um, mm-hmm. Even the dexamethasone elixir that we give to two-year-olds, uh, just obviously like relatively small amounts but it does have uh, like percentage has a lot of alcohol. Um, But yep, 
Uh, you always want to have not only computer algorithm checks and balances, you want to use your critical thinking skills in order to avoid situations like that from happening. I, I can't imagine being a, a medical resident or especially an intern and having you as an RN. That would be kind of <laughs> ter would be terrifying. Uh, first day of residency, uh, congratulations, you have James as your RN. <laughs> Don't make any mistakes, he's gonna know it. Can't imagine being a, what if this was a emergency medicine resident and you're thinking, oh, you know, I'm gonna make this patient's life a little easier. They're not gonna have to taste this alcohol, this jet fuel of a drug. I'm just gonna give them this liquid orally. Maybe they don't, maybe they couldn't take pills, for example. Yeah. Um, and then your nurse comes to you and is like, their arm doesn't look so good. And they're like, oh, what's wrong with the arm? No, uh, after I gave them the dexamethasone. And you said, what? And imagine that being your patient. That is hard to imagine. Very hard to imagine. Yeah. And I don't know the circumstances surrounding the situation, but that's the story that was told. And, you know, mistakes do happen. Unfortunately, there are big misses. Fortunately, those are quite rare. Yeah. Um, even though it's not a particularly happy note, I think that's uh, time for us to end the After Hours podcast for today. Hopefully you've learned some things to do and some things not to do and also been entertained. As always, uh, may God give you health and happiness. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.